I was just thinking as I was sitting there uh, right before I jumped up here eagerly to preach to you that I did the one thing that I'm hoping that you aren't doing right now. I looked down at my watch and I said, okay, you can do this. You can get this in. And then I thought, it dawned on me, that God has granted me a perfect object lesson for today's message. So if you were one of those who immediately was looking at your watch thinking, how late are we going to be here today? I wonder if he's going to go the full term on this one. I want you to be thinking about that as I talk about the Thessalonians and the Bereans and how the Word of God was both taught to them and received by them. Because that's really what today's message is about. It's sort of a strange kind of message. It's sort of a message about messages. It's a sermon about sermons. I'm going to preach a little bit about, about preaching. And I want you to think about, as I do, I want you to think about your attitude about the Word. Do you trust in it? Are you confident in it? Do you believe that it has, as God promised that it does, inherent power? Do you believe that if the Word of God is properly explained, if the pieces are laid out, and then the pieces of that explanation are then applied to a person's life situation, do you believe that the Word of God has power to stand on its own and create change? Are you personally under its authority? I mean, when you are confronted by it, challenged with it, when something from it convicts you, when it goes contrary to the way that you already think or feel or want to believe, how do you respond to it? Are you a, a critic of it or a servant of it? Are you a, a student of it alone or do you seek to be a faithful disciple of it? And, and when you come to church on Sunday morning or go to your life group or your Bible study, what's the attitude that you take with you? What's the level of expectancy that you bring? What are you hoping for? What are you looking for? And what are you taking away with you? And then what are you doing with it? All those questions swirl around this handful of verses I want to read to you today from Acts chapter 17. So let's pray together. Father God, give us ears to hear. I pray that the words I say will be clear and sharp and concise. I pray that your Holy Spirit will speak through it all. And I pray, Father, that we would evaluate ourselves by your evaluation by the grid that your word lays upon us and our hearts, our minds, our actions. And Father, I pray that we would respond rightly today. I pray, Father, that supernaturally you would tear down resistance, opposition, confusion, defiance, strongholds, whatever they may be, Father, that keep us at a distance from you. Keep us out of step with you. Cause us to be less than faithful to you. Father, I pray that when our brief time together in your word today is done, we'd be more confident in it. We'd be more equipped by it. We'd be better guided by it, more in love with it. And so, Father, bring more glory to you. So, Father, whoever we are, whoever's listening, all those who are here, all those who will hear what's said here today, Father, I pray that you would speak and we would know that it's your voice speaking and we receive your word as from you and not from men. For yours is the power and the glory. And we give you praise today in Jesus' name. Amen. Acts chapter 17, verse 1. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, 
And on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded, and they joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they couldn't find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authority, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. Again, we see the progression of the gospel from city to city to city. And God is working a plan, and Paul's a willing vessel in that plan. But all of this is all by the divine orchestration of God, his providence to get the gospel to the nations from Asia to Europe and throughout the world. And so as the gospel begins to spread, it goes to another city that's dominated by Roman culture. It's not exactly a Roman city, but a city that owes most of its success and its prosperity uh, to Rome. And you see Paul doing what Paul always does. I love some of these sort of key phrases here. As was his custom. He started first with the Jews. Those people who had some basis in Scripture. Those people who had the promises of God in what we would call the Old Testament. And so he goes to those people, as was his custom, and he lays out the fulfillment of the promises of God, the covenants of God in the Old Testament, all in the person of Christ. Now remember something that Paul wrote later. That when it comes to Jesus, the great stumbling block to Jewish people was the idea that the Son of God would ever suffer, be humiliated, and die on a cross like a common criminal. That was the great stumbling block. So the passage makes it clear that what Paul does is he explains from the Scriptures, and here's the key word, why it was necessary that Jesus die, how this all fits into the grander scheme, the big picture plan of God for the redemption of the world, why it was necessary that Jesus die, and then with this emphatic conclusion... He's not a Christ. He's not a Messiah figure. He's not a relatable teacher. He's not a worthy rabbi. He is the Christ. This is it. The way, the truth, the life, the one by whom there is no other way. It's Jesus and Jesus alone. And so Paul lays this out for them. And I want to just pull out a couple of thoughts and do these rather rapidly this morning for some implications for you and me when it comes to sharing the gospel. Now, some of these are sort of maybe personal pet peeves, so I'll try not to come down too hard on those things, but I want to make sure that we're understanding some implications here. One of the things that Paul did was this. Paul took the necessary time with the people that he cared about to give them the complete gospel. He took sufficient time to to explain it all out. You know, sometimes I think we do a little more harm than we realize when we're only giving little snippets Little cliches, little little truisms about God or the gospel. It's not untrue that God loves you. It's not wrong that God does have a plan for your life. It's not true, not untrue that you're, you're missing out on what life could be apart from Christ. But notice that Paul never gives simplicities. He he never gives things that aren't complete. He never shares the good news of God in a way that's not salvific. In other words, he never gives insufficient information that a person who believes that, accepts it as true, and then acts on it can't be saved by it. And sometimes you can't do all that. 
in a text exchange. Sometimes you can't do all that in a short conversation on the phone or over 15 minutes with a cup of coffee. You can begin it, but I would encourage you strongly. When you think about those people that God has called you to reach, when you think about your mission field, when you think about your one, which is what that big number one signifies, Invest the time sufficiently to lay out the whole gospel. Paul's laying this out from the beginning. I can just imagine how he's sharing this. It starts in Genesis. Let me tell you who God is. Let me tell you what God did and what God intended, what God offered us. Let me tell you what sin has done to God's grand offer of grace and goodness for us. Let me tell you what we lost when we sinned. But let me tell you about how great God is in his grace to offer us redemption in spite of our sin. Though, though Eden was lost, a new heaven and a new earth is promised for those who have faith in Him and lay it all out from sin and the fall to the coming of Christ, to the fulfillment of all those prophecies, to His perfect life, His virgin birth and perfect life and sacrificial death and bodily resurrection, physical appearances and promise coming just as He ascended into heaven. Lay it all out sufficiently. And there are two key terms that it says that Paul did. Paul was explaining, and he was proving. I believe you see already in the book of Acts a case for preaching that we would call expository. Let's let the Word speak. Let's lay it out and explain it. What do these verses mean? What is it saying here? Well, what's the information that God is speaking to us here? What are the facts? And he explained it. I had to make a note to myself, don't spend too much time on this point. There's so much of modern preaching that doesn't even touch this. It's so weighted on the authority of the speaker. How convincing is he? How persuasive is he? How clever is he with words? How motivational is he? How persuasive in all of his, you know, maneuverings? Really the authority of Scripture itself. If we're not hearing the Word of God carefully, systematically, and the big picture explained, not just ideas about, not the nuances of Scripture, not just sort of big picture nebulous concepts, but what does the Word actually say? Where can I root my life? Where, where can I tether myself? Where can I, where can I drop an anchor that will hold fast? It's only in the actual words of Scripture, not just ideas or thoughts or concepts, not vagueness, not fuzzy things. We have a fuzziness about us as a modern church. Very little doctrinal clarity. I remember early on in the days at Calvary, we had a, a life group that didn't like some of the changes that were happening and probably didn't like the new leadership that come into play and didn't like the way I preached and just didn't like a number of things. And I remember they moved in mass. The whole life group left all together at once. And someone told me, you know, they're doing church on their own at home, which a home church is not a bad thing in and of itself. This is what you see here. Jason, pastor of the home church. And I said, they're doing church at home. Okay, well, who's, who's preaching or teaching them? Well, they're watching something on TV. I said, really, who are they watching? They said, they're watching T.D. Jakes. I said, you've got to be kidding me. How is it that we could be so doctrinally unclear? How is it that people could grow up in church and then turn to a false teacher to be their pseudo-TV pastor? We're fuzzy. We're unclear in our thinking. We have nebulous concepts. We've got to be rooted in the specifics. He opens up the words, and he explains to them what he means, and then he proves Proving is like laying out the evidence, making a case, putting pieces side by side by side. If God said this, and then this happens, don't you see why this is necessary? And so he's building this case that the only means to bring about the salvation of the world, not just for the Jews, but for anybody, is Jesus. 
Because all stand guilty before the absolute authority of the Father. All fall short of His glory. All have violated His commands. That the law of God is an insurmountable wall that we can't get over or around or under. All need the same good news of forgiveness afforded to us only in Christ. And He builds the case till finally the gospel rightly presented forces something. And that's a decision. I either believe this and I humbly graciously receive it or I'm offended by this I'm offended that you think that's the only way I'm offended that my religion is not good enough I'm offended that my rational way of thinking is not sufficient I'm I'm offended that my philosophy will not get me where I want to go I'm offended at your narrow-mindedness and your dogma but it forces an issue you see Paul presents the gospel ultimately logically not emotionally logically not emotionally I spent a number of years in student ministry, and I can't tell you how many different student events I went to in student camps and student rallies. And over a period of time, I began to be a bit cynical some of the messages that we would hear and how manipulative they were, how exploitative they were, how they were all designed simply to evoke an immediate response. I respect the fact, the fact that some of you uh, parents in this room have discipled your children up to the point of baptism and understanding what it is that they are committing to. What it is that they're making a statement of, that Jesus is king of my life, and I'm promising fidelity to him for the rest of my life. I can remember some of those messages, and there was one illustration I just remember hearing again and again to the point where if I didn't roll my eyes physically, I certainly was doing it inside. And the, and the story of you know, someone presenting the gospel to someone in a parking lot, and then just, just adamantly rejecting it and telling them, I don't want your Bible, and I don't want your God, and I don't want your Jesus, and then being in a fiery accident that night and rushing to the emergency room in a semi-coma state saying, I'm burning, I'm burning. And I thought all these kind of messages just designed to stir up emotion. Trying to get someone to respond quickly. Well, what if I die and I face fire? Well, I don't want that. I remember we did drama at our church before we figured out a little bit better theology. Heaven's gates and hell's flames. Maybe some of you are guilty participants in it. Forgive us, God. But I remember the manipulation that we did. And we kind of cynically said, you know, this, we ought to rename this drama Another Way to Die because it's like scene after scene of Another Way to Die and make people fearful of just dying instead of laying out the whole gospel. You know, you need Jesus today, not because you might die tonight, but because you're probably going to live tomorrow and the next day and the next. And what are you going to do with that life he's given? And Paul didn't appeal just to emotions and to fear. He laid it out logically. Now, when he was in the synagogue, he had a couple of assumptions. One of the assumptions is this, is that though they didn't know Jesus, they did know the scriptures. And at least he could appeal to this. He could appeal to them that they trust in the authority of those scriptures. Do you believe that this is God's word? And almost emphatically, those religious Jews would have said, yes, we, we honor the scriptures. Though they didn't recognize the Messiah of the scriptures, at least he could appeal to the scriptures so he could build his case there. Now next week I'm going to talk about this from Paul's uh, missionary journey into Athens, standing on the Areopagus in Mars Hill. How do you share the gospel with people who don't have a biblical base? Because more often than not, that's where we are. Now, in our culture that we live in today in southeast Alabama, you encounter both. You have people that have grown up in church and at least have some sort of lip service respect for the authority of the Bible. At least you can start there. Do you believe the Bible? Do you believe that God gave us a Bible? You can start there and build a case. But you're increasingly going to encounter people. Why do you even believe the Bible? That's just another book. That's just something written by men. That's just myths. It's no different from this or that or the other. We'll talk about that next week. Be presented logically and emotionally with these assumptions. They accepted the scriptures as authoritative, 
but also this. They're intelligent enough that when presented the facts and reason and proofs and presumably in dialogue, because he did this over three Sabbath days, interacting with them. And we know from his letter to the Thessalonians, he didn't just preach to them, he shared his life with them. So in this dialogue and this give and take, presenting information that's true, reasoning with them with the facts that they were intelligent enough to respond to the truth if someone would explain it to them and someone would apply it to their life. Here's one gross assumption that we make that is patently false. Just because people around us have heard of Jesus, have been to church, and on a Bible, does not necessarily mean that anyone has ever explained to them the gospel. That anyone has ever laid it out to them. That anyone has ever built the whole case. This is who God is. This is what God has done. This is who you are and what you have done. This is who Jesus is. And this is what Jesus has done. And this is what Jesus offers you. And this is how you must respond. And this is God's spirit. And this is how God affects real change, conversion in us, and regeneration. And this is the life of someone who commits to following Christ and laying out the whole gospel to them. And we know a bit more from 1 Thessalonians of Paul's example here. Again, this is sort of skimming the surface. Acts is a historical account. doesn't go into great detail of what all Paul encountered there. But Paul wrote about his experiences in Thessaloniki. In the first letter to the Thessalonians, chapter 2, he said this. He says, you know yourselves, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. I mean, as difficult as it was and with the difficulties he faced and the rejection, it was not in vain. He says, though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, we talked about that just in previous weeks, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. Man, that's what I love about Paul. It was hard. People resisted. And we paid a steep price. We kept going. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God. Why do we do this? I have nothing to gain from this personally. It's sure not to profit from it. I have no ulterior motives here, except that God has commissioned me as his representative. Not only that, he says, we speak not to please God, but to please man. I mean, not to please man, but to please God who tests our heart. We never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. How do I feel towards you, he says? What, what's my attitude towards you? I'm like a mother nursing her own child. That, that's the level of affection I have for you. So being affectionately desirous of you, we are ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you'd become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and our toil, we work night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. Why did Paul do his ministry as he did? He wasn't compensated for it. He labored in a different field for it. Why did he do that? So that his entry, or the entry of the gospel through him into these places, would not be clouded by any other motive. I'm not doing this for any other reason, but that you might know the God that I know because I care about you. We exhorted each one of you and encouraged you. Oh, excuse me, I skipped part. For you know, listen to this statement of affection, like a father with his children. I'm like a nursing mom. I'm like a father with his children towards you. We exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you. Walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom 
glory. We also thank God constantly for this, that when you receive the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. Do you do that? When you hear the scriptures, do you do that? Not the authority of a persuasive speaker, but the authority of the eternal word. When you hear it explained and applied, you receive it like God is speaking to you because Paul said he is. Some thoughts from that passage in 1 Thessalonians. Paul considered the cost, whatever they were, worth it. It was painful, it was difficult, in conflict we persevered. It's worth it. Paul knew this, and something we'd be uh, well suited to remind ourselves of. The gospel is never going to advance without courage. If you're waiting for the easy opportunities, if you're waiting for the smooth entries, if you're waiting for the wide open doors, if you're waiting for the eager person, you're going to be waiting. The gospel doesn't advance without courage. Courage to be disagreed with, courage to be argued against, courage to be disliked, courage to be disenfranchised, courage to be oppressed, courage to be persecuted. It takes courage. Paul operated from these two motives. I shared these with you, saw them in the text. One is faithfulness to God. Why do I do this? Because God's entrusted me with this. He's passed this baton to me. I, I, I must keep running with it. Faithfulness to God is his first motive. His second motive is this, is he he said, I'm like a mother with a child that she's nursing and like a father with his children. It was his affection for the people. So think about these parallel motivations. I want to be faithful to God who's given me this divine trust. I care about you like I would care about my own children, my own infant children. Listen, if those are your two motivations, both in your Christian life and what you say as a representative of Christ, how you speak to people, and what you say when you speak to people, listen, if your motivations are, I want to be faithful to God, I have to be. I have to be faithful to Him. I have to do what's pleasing to Him, not people. And I have to do what's loving and affectionate towards you, caring about you like a child. You know, that forces something from us. That forces truth without apology. It seems like the greatest commandment that many of us consciously or subconsciously labor under these days is this, thou shalt not offend. Thou shalt not offend. I don't want to say anything that might offend someone. We like to use these things and we spiritualize them. I don't want to push someone away. If someone is on the doorstep of hell, how much farther are you going to push them away? If someone is lost, if they're a slave of sin, a captive of the dominion of darkness, as the Bible describes, what, where are you pushing them to? What farther place might you push them? No, if we, we really care about faithfulness to God, and we really care about that person like we would for a, a, our own child, our own nursing child, then the most loving thing that we can do, the most faithful thing that we can do is simply say the truth. Say the truth. This is what the Bible says about sin. This is what the Bible says about sex. This is what the Bible says about marriage. This is what the Bible says about gender. This is what the Bible says about life. The most unloving, ungodly thing that we can do is to accept the mantra of our times and not offend with the truth. You see, Paul poured his life into this mission. He says, I shared my life with you, not just these words. I pour myself into this. I'm willing to pay to do this. I'm willing to sacrifice to do this. You know, I said just a moment ago, 
The gospel doesn't advance without courage. I should have included this statement in your notes as well. The gospel also doesn't advance without cost. What are you willing to give? You may have to do something as obvious in your giving as pay to go on a mission trip. You may have to do something less obvious, like pay with your time. Will you give the time for this? Will you set something else aside so that you might be engaged with somebody? Paul lived a life also that validated the message. He said again and again, you know how we live when we're among you. You know how we lived. We weren't hit and run. Paul wasn't a television preacher. He wasn't a celebrity. He disdained the celebrity status. We were talking about this last night, our team that went to Kenya. We had some good time, fellowship last night, met and ate together, and we was kind of just debriefing about the whole experience. I think one thing the whole team had in common was we all felt a bit uncomfortable with the sort of celebrity status that was afforded to us. So that first morning of the conference, and this is all outdoors, some of you, many of you have seen the pictures. We'll share more of this with the whole congregation I don't, at, at sometime in the future soon, so I don't want to give too much away. We're in this outdoor conference, 12, 1,300 widows there. But for us, they set up this table, this dais, with you know, some artificial flowers all down the front. And we were noticing, even looking back at the pictures, do you notice like there are multiple bottles of water all in front of us you know, to make sure we wouldn't get thirsty? I don't know if any of those people had clean water with them. And Moses, who's the pastor and the leader, he set a chair beside him, and, and I thought, I know that's where he's going to want me to sit. So now I'm sitting in this high-backed um, black office chair while you know, they're sitting in little folding chairs. I thought, we're a little uncomfortable with this status. It doesn't seem quite to jive with the Apostle Paul who disdained this thing. And I hope we always feel that. He gave his life for them. He didn't just speak to them. He poured his life into them. And please hear this. Paul called them to more than conversion. This is so much the heartbeat of our church that I wish I had more time to elaborate on it this morning. You'll hear more about this tonight when we launch our new season, a new emphasis on small group discipleship, our D groups. That God has called us more to conversion. You can't biblically separate conversion and discipleship. You, you can't biblically, legitimately, authentically separate someone who says, I want Jesus to be my Savior, who's not also following Jesus as Lord. And as his full presentation of the gospel attests to, he calls him. Listen to how he says this in verse 12. We exhorted, encouraged, charged. I mean, that's as emphatic as he could say. We exhorted, we encouraged, we charged you. Walk worthy of Christ, a man worthy of Christ. It doesn't mean do this and you earn Christ. If you're Christ, you will live this. That's a call to discipleship. What was their response? Well, in a word, it was mixed. It was mixed, right? The greatest preacher, apart from Jesus himself, and what do they do? It's mixed. Some accepted it, some opposed it. But as I said earlier, the gospel, if it's given correctly, is going to push the issue of response. What are you going to do with this? Because if it's so nebulous and it's so unthreatening, then you can just be indifferent towards it. You can shrug it off. But if you give the whole thing, all the implications and all the truth statements, all the claims, all the demands and all the promises, and somebody's got to say, nah, I can't do that, or yes. And you know what? We don't have control over either of those when it comes to people. That's not in our hands, not in our purview. It wasn't in Paul's. Those who oppose the gospel there leveled these two accusations, which I think are interesting. I'm going to go through these quickly for time's sake. Two accusations, which they really didn't know how right they really were when they said these. They, they meant these entirely as negatives, but they really were spot on. Here's what they said of them. These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. 
What are they saying? Man, these guys are nuisances everywhere they go. They're creating problems everywhere. The wake behind them is not good. Look, they, they've stirred up difficulty and conflict. They've been arrested. They've been jailed. Look at their record. You know, if this was the modern Internet age, these guys wouldn't even get a voice. You know, they'd be plastering up their, their pictures everywhere, all the times they were arrested and all the scars. And look what they've done. So they've turned the world upside down. And then it said, they're saying there's another king. You know, I said this was not a Roman city per se, but under the great influence of the Romans. Surely a cult of emperor worship was there too. And they believed that the Roman emperor was more than just a man, but that following the decrees of the Roman emperor would surely bring them blessing, material and otherwise. So whether it was clearly stated or spoken, it was certainly practically lived. No, Caesar is our king. Caesar blesses us. Caesar takes care of us. Takes care of us. Our government blesses us, takes care of us. We'll look to our government. And this was their cult and their culture. They say they're saying there's another King Jesus. You know, they were really right. The gospel is the only way to turn this upside down world right side up. What, what does this world need the most? It needs the gospel. That's what the church exists for. That's part of the challenge I gave to those deacons. We can do a lot of good things in the world, but the only thing that will take an upside down world and right side it up is the transforming power of the gospel. The gospel penetrating people and then families and marriages and homes and households and then churches and communities. So, yeah, they're right. We live in an upside down world. and There's only one remedy. But when he said they're saying there's another king, they were right about that, too, because the true gospel is always a kingdom gospel. Don't ever forget that. I know I'm throwing out lots of just sort of darts and points, but let these stick and wrestle with these. The true gospel is always a kingdom gospel. What do I mean by that? When you're calling someone to salvation, when you're telling them the good news of Jesus, you're inviting them into a relationship underneath the sovereignty of Christ. You're saying he's the king. He's ushered in a new kingdom. You're in a kingdom right now, whether you realize it or not. It's a kingdom of sin and darkness. I'm inviting you into a kingdom of life and light. Jesus is the king. Follow him. Surrender your life to the king. He is the good king. He's perfect, and he's just, and he's loving, and he's kind, and his is the kingdom, and one day we'll enjoy him forever. It's a kingdom gospel. Real quickly, I want to contrast this with the next group. They bring Jason out. Jason's home is presumably the place where the house church would have met, where the Christians would have gathered. They had no church buildings yet or places. Many of them being converted Jews still were gathering in the synagogue with other Jews, gathering in a home to worship, to pray. They pull Jason out and basically ask him for a security. You pay us, we'll let them go. Promise us they're not going to create more trouble, we'll let them go. In so doing, they go to a place that's not on the main path. It's not on that great Roman road, the Via Ignatia. It's not on that main path of major cities. It's a small outpost, Berea. And they go to Berea, and we see in verses 10 through 15 that what happens in Berea is a little bit different. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea, and when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue just like he did in Thessalonica. When these Jews, now these Jews were more noble, remember that, than those in Thessalonica, they received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by call at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. There's some distinctions here about the Bereans and the Thessalonians. The Bereans were said to be nobler. 
Now, literally, it means they were of higher birth. But this is not talking about their background. It's not talking about their parentage or the genealogy. This is talking about the noble way that they approached the royal word of God. What was different about them? They had this openness, this eagerness, this nobility about There's something to be recognized and praised and applauded about the Bereans and their approach to Scripture. At the very least, we would say this, they were more eager than the Thessalonians. I mean, they came with a sense of eagerness. You know, I think sometimes, um, for me, on a Sunday morning service, as the music is going, and even as I'm getting into that and I'm singing and praising, I still feel sort of like a runner um, at the block waiting for, waiting for the gun to sound. So I'm ready to go. I'm ready to jump. I'm really eager to share with you things that I feel like I've learned or that God's been showing me or, or fruits of the study. I want you to be eager to hear. Eager to hear it. Come, what is God going to say to us today? How is God going to feed us today? You know, you know when you're hungry, all sorts of food tastes good. Have you ever noticed that? You know, I made the mistake the other day, which I know common sense always tells us not to do this. Don't go to the grocery store when you're hungry, right? Don't go to the grocery store when you're hungry. But it was about 2 o'clock, and I hadn't had lunch. And I was literally thinking about this as I was checking out at the Publix, and I was looking at the stuff that was laid out there before me. And I thought, there's an, um, there's an inordinate amount of carbohydrates here on this. Because I couldn't decide what kind of chips I wanted, so there were several. And I couldn't decide what sweets I wanted, so there were several. There was some ham in there somewhere. I don't think there were any vegetables. There was some orange juice, if that counts, but that was only because I was thirsty. But I thought about that. When you're hungry, everything tastes sweet. Isn't that what the Proverbs say? When you're not hungry, eh, we get picky. You know, we dissect. What's in that for me? That doesn't help me. It doesn't speak to me. That's not relevant to me. The hungry person, this word, is, is satisfying. And they were discerning of it. You know, one of the things they did was this, and I love this statement, and I've, I've derived from this, this statement I share with you always, or often, when you're hearing the word taught, whether it's someone like me or one of our staff preaching to you or your life group leader, you're listening to it on the radio or watching someone on TV or reading a book, whatever it may be, whatever means by which it's conveyed to you, please let the first question you're always asking yourself be this. Is this true? Please don't let the first question be, how does this make me feel? More error comes from evaluating what we hear based on our own feelings and emotions than probably any other thing. How does this make me feel? No, is this true? And the first task of teaching or preaching or speaking the word is accuracy. To study, to handle it right, rightly. Is this correct what we're saying here? And the second step is the application of it. But application is awry, obviously, if the information is rendered incorrectly. How can you apply wrong information rightly? Very difficult to do so. They were very discerning with it. And this doesn't mean they were nitpicky. This is not the sort of person that's just waiting for someone to make a mistake. I, you know, I've had those sort of people in the congregation, and, and God can sharpen you with all sorts of instruments, I know. And I know that God makes pearls with grit and sand, and some of you have been the grit to my pearl, and I'm okay with that. I, I had a person in my congregation before that I really think delighted in finding fault with what I said. Now, sometimes it was helpful to me, because as a young preacher and pastor, I sometimes made some mistakes. Some of them were innocent, like when I met Moses and said Noah, but I think most of the people got what I was saying. Some of them were a little bit more egregious. Some of them were just simply slip-ups. Sometimes it was just out of immaturity or stupidity. Sometimes I just said the wrong word. But if you're only listening for the slip-ups and foul-ups, you're sort of like the person who comes to church on Sunday morning and you make some sort of crossword puzzle game with the typos in the bulletin. You know, if that's all you get out of Sunday, look, I got seven today. How many did you find? Listen, I hope you come with an eagerness to be taught. And that means grace, not grace for error. I'm not advocating grace for error, but grace. 
You know, I had this conversation with someone the other day and about who do you listen to, who do you read. We have to be discerning because you are accountable for what you take in. But you also have to, be ex- to express some level of grace because we're all imperfect and growing and developing. But what did the Scripture say? So they took what they knew the Word of God to say with how Paul was explaining it and applying it and says, does this match? Now that precludes, that requires a certain level of knowledge of the Scriptures, right? You've got to know if what you're hearing is wrong because you know what's truth. Without knowing the truth, you'll accept a lot of things that are wrong. They were discerning. But also, they were more affected by the word. More of them were saved. The impact was greater. Where the hunger is greater, the impact is going to be greater. The effect is going to be greater. What are some lessons from all this on how you and I might receive the word more like Bereans? As I was thinking about that, and I'll wrap this up in shorter, or I do have a clock too. What sort of preaching, worshiping church should we be? There's a synergy here. There really is. I didn't know exactly what to call this message, and so I just, the reasonable word, I don't know. If you've got something better, I'll take all suggestions. But really, maybe the title should have been the synergistic word. Because when a congregation listens like the Bereans, it forces a communicator to preach like a Paul. You see how that works? One of the things I, I love most about you, this congregation, and the people that are here, is you press me to be more like Paul, in the sense that I've got to make sure that what I'm saying lines up with Scripture. Um, a number of times people have come to me and they'll bring the notes that they've taken from the sermon I've given, and they'll say, now where is that in the text? Can you show me that in the text? And it's reminded me again and again, I better make sure that what I say is in the text. That I'm not just bringing ideas to you and then trying to find a text that will verify or validate my idea. But I'm bringing the text to you and trying to make sure that I explain it correctly. So sometimes it'll be a little bit dry or just specific to the text. And, and you may be wondering, you know, well, what are your thoughts on it? As my family could well attest to you, there are not very many subjects that I do not have very specific ideas and opinions about. <laughs> and I would be happy to discuss any of those with you at any time. But up here, I owe it to you and I owe it to God to not to fill your ears with my opinions. But the text, so it drives me when there's Berean listening, there's Pauline preaching. But you have to come with an eagerness. And not just an eagerness to gather facts. We are not a classroom here. And, and I'm not a professor. We're practitioners. That's why I often pray before a message, God, make us doers of the word, not hearers only. We're not trying to be the smartest congregation. We want to be the most godly congregation. We want to be the most biblically-minded congregation. We want to be the most doctrinally sound congregation. We want to be the most spirit-filled congregation. We want to be the most loving congregation. We want to be the most missional congregation. We want to be doers, doers of the word. It forces the issue. So are you hungry for the word? Do you submit to it? If If it addresses you, will you respond rightly to it? Is there a synergy of speaking and hearing? And I'll leave you with these two big and very simple, broad, wide sweeping takeaways for all of us. Make sure you're sharing the word. Not just ideas or opinions about the word, not snippets of the word, not concepts around the word, but when you're talking about Jesus, and you're trying to advance the kingdom, and you're giving the gospel, let the scriptures stand. Lay it out there. Read them. Explain them. Show people how they fit. Connect the dots. Share the word. Know it. Explain it. Discuss it. Reason it out. Let it work. All the while making sure your life does not invalidate what you're saying. But share the word and let it work. And also receive the word. 
always be ready to receive that word, hearing and learning and teaching. We had a conversation with some pastors the other day. One of the questions that came up, do you ever preach the same sermon twice? And some guys were going back and forth. They said, you know, your people don't remember it. You know, they won't remember what you said. I tell the same stories. I, I told the same story exactly a year ago on this date. No one remembered it. And I was thinking as he was saying that, that may be true. I mean, maybe you have a really ignorant congregation. I don't know. Maybe it's true. I know if my mom was listening, she would remember it because she wrote it down in the margin of her Bible. And so she would come back and say, you know, you preach this back here and so-and-so. And I thought about this when it comes to the Word. In general, I don't preach the same sermon twice. If it's the same text, it won't be the same message. And, and that's not just because I want to throw at you something fresh or different or novel. There's nothing new under the sun. Solomon taught us that. It's that the second time around, I learned some things and saw some things I didn't on the first time. Or I understood some things better that connected differently than I did the first time. Always learning and coming to a knowledge of the truth. But I hope that you'll share it because you're receiving it. And what you're receiving, you're going to share. That you'll never be just this sort of pond that we're pumping, pumping truth in, that nothing ever flows out. That each of us would be a stream of the gospel always, coming in and going out, sharing what God has done. And that's life. That's a life-giving stream through the Word of God. I'm going to ask you to pray with me this morning. Listen, as you bow your heads and pray, and think about what your reaction is going to be, not just that emotional, that first gut reaction, but wrestling with what you've heard today. What does God want from you? I suppose there are some of you that are in some conversations already with people that you want them to come to faith. Be patient. Invest the time. Lay it all out. Let God work. Maybe that challenges some of you to say, I've got to make sure that I'm better prepared, don't I? Not just these little, little snippets and pieces and cliches, but can I tell the story? Can I tell the story? And do that and trust God. Others of you, your response today might be simply to God. God, forgive me for not, not being like a Berean. To come hungry and to come eager and to come discerning so I can leave obedient and faithful. And most of all, maybe somebody in this room is not a believer yet. I guess if I could reiterate just one simple point to you that's most profound and necessary, it would be the same conclusion that Paul gave to the Thessalonians. This Jesus is the Christ. You and I live in a world marked by sin undeniably. My life and your life marked by sin undeniably. There is but one remedy to the sickness of sin in this world and in my life. And that's Jesus, the promised one of God. That's what Messiah is, the promised one, the Christ. God did not promise salvation through multiple means or ends. There are not multiple ways to forgiveness and grace. God and heaven, new life and life eternal. There is the Christ, the promise of God, the Messiah. There is no other name given among men whereby we must be saved. It's Jesus, Jesus alone. And that doesn't change if you're on a different continent, if you speak a different language, if you come from a different background. That applies to the religious and irreligious. People have heard this all their life and the people are hearing it the first time. It's Jesus, only Jesus. Will you come to Jesus and put your faith and trust in him? Will you surrender to him? 
declare him king of your life? Will you accept his free gift of grace and forgiveness and mercy as his Holy Spirit takes over your life and makes you into a new creation? He's the constant. He's the willing one. Are you willing? Are you willing to make Jesus king today? If you are, I'm going to invite you to come when we, when we sing in just a moment. Father, I pray you move our hearts and our minds in accordance with your word. Conform us to Christ. May we be true disciples, those who have accepted the call to follow Christ, those who are growing in the character of Christ, and those who are committed to the mission of Christ. May that be us, I pray, in increasing measure. In Jesus' name, amen.